Season 2 of the Casting Light Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mack. Here at the Casting Light Podcast, we talk about lighting, the people that do it, and how they do what they do. You can find us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com, on Twitter at Podcasting Light, and on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast. With me today on the Casting Light Podcast is Norman Coates. He is the Director of Lighting at North Carolina School of the Arts. Welcome, Norman. Well, thank you for having me here. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's my pleasure. So how long have you been at UNCSA? Much longer than I thought. This will be my 25th year. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And how long have you been in the business overall? I think I did my first professional show in 1975 as an assistant. So uh, so it's been a while. I'm not counting. Okay. Let's get right into it. How did you get into the business? What was that thing that that put you on the road? Um, I I think I took an unusual course. I'm not sure about that, though. Um, I feel like everyone thinks their course is unusual. What I've discovered doing these interviews is that there is no one course. And everyone thinks theirs is, oh, well, mine's weird. Yeah, you know, because I, I was not a uh, theater kid in high school. Although I went to see the shows, my mother was uh, was always very um, into traveling up from Philadelphia to New York to see shows. Um, I would be drug along, semi disinterested. Um, and at some point, I had a, an English teacher uh, send me to see a show as part of a class requirement. And of all things, it was waiting for Godot, and I was oh, chased boy. down to. Yeah, I was chased into the city, and I I think it was at the Forest. Um, it actually might have been at the Schubert. And uh, I sat down, watched Waiting for Godot, and for whatever reason, at that moment in time, I thought they were doing that play for me. I lost consciousness of the rest of the audience. Um, it was all about what was going on on stage, talking to me directly. So. Um, so at that point, I thought, hey, this, there's something to this theater thing. Um, maybe I need to know more about it. Um, so that's, that was sort of my stepping off point of thinking that theater is this interesting thing. I never thought of it as a career. I just thought, hey, this is really cool and, uh, and went on from there. And what did that cause you to do? Um, well, I had been uh, studying pre-law, basically. Uh, been bouncing around colleges like most people at that time. Um, And I looked around and I found out that Temple University at that time was one of what they used to call the league school. Uh, It was one of the better colleges or programs available. So I thought, well, I'm just going to jump right into that and see what happens. Um, And so um, it was a good fit at the time. I was young, foolish, ambitious. I just wanted to do everything. So, um, So I started by pushing a broom and mopping the stage like you know, most people, I guess. And, uh, and then eventually just fell into lighting. It became the natural thing. What do you mean fell into lighting? And what did that spark? Well, <laughs> I, you know, well, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> do you see what I did uh, there? Yeah, I did see what you did there. And, and, and occasionally there were a few sparks here and there. But I think that how it evolved was after dabbling with everything, taking acting classes, directing classes, scene design classes, costume classes, theater history classes, um, lighting was the thing that I had a natural vocabulary and language for, and it didn't occur to me at the time. And I don't know if this was post the event or, uh, or actually led me in this direction was that I realized that all of my memories from childhood tend to be, tended to be light based as opposed to you know, what we had for dinner that night or the, the scent or the sound or the song that was playing. I remembered things 
from when I was younger based upon what it looked like and looked like in the sense of the visual environment and the lighting. Um, so perhaps it was a natural fit or perhaps all of a sudden it just made all my synapses aligned and, and made me think in that direction. But, um, but it worked out well. Um, the professor at the time was a, 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 a Richard Devon, Dick Devon, and he was also the uh, production manager at Williamstown. So I spent my summers at Williamstown, and uh, my winters in Philadelphia. And uh, and uh, he was this quiet, gentle sort of teacher, and uh, and that just sent me down that road. What was that thing that inspired you to want to become an educator yourself? I, I think it was by happenstance. Um, I had thought 25 years ago, I was living in New York, I was working freelance, I was, you know, was hit or miss, but I was earning a living and doing okay, and I thought that I needed to line up my future somehow. So the 20 or 30 years when I got sick in New York, um, I'd have somewhere to go and I could fall back on teaching. And, and that was actually a rationalization. Um, they kept nagging me to interview for this job, uh, a TD friend of mine, and I kept saying, well, no thanks, no thanks. And I did, and they offered. So I thought I was going to do this for a year. And what was that job? Um, this is the job I've got now. Oh. Um, I thought I'd come here for a year as a guest artist and um, travel back and forth to New York and stay in New York. And it just didn't work out that way. Now, if you're to ask me, the next question would be, well, why? It's like, I don't know. Um, you interview students, you feel uh, required to help them. I, I don't know how that happened. So I think there's an interesting thing in theater that we never think about is that we're all teaching all the time. If you're a road electrician, every stop you're teaching the local crew. If you're going into a show in New York and you're loading in, you know, you're working with your production electrician trying to teach them what your goal is in the design and where you're going. So there's always a, a teaching factor that we do that we just never realize. That's that's absolutely true. You know, of course, I never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. But tell me about the program first. Well, we're um, in lighting. Uh, we're the uh, we're just an undergraduate program. It's a four year conservatory structure. You come in in your first year, and the goal is to give every incoming student in every area a sort of really solid foundation. So basically, everybody takes the same thing. So we actually have sound students in, in a color and design class or, we, you know, we have drawing classes. Everybody's in those. So the first year is totally about vocabulary and everybody working in other areas. Um, so the costume design, designer will be hanging lights. A wig and makeup kid will be in the shop um, using a nail gun. Um, everybody will be scene painting at some point. First year is, is a nice, solid basis. After that year... Um, you start in your sophomore year in your concentration and you actually start crewing specifically in, in that area. Now, what we do is that let's say that you have a 16 credit hour term in your first year for those credits are really based on production productions, not outside the classroom production is the major classroom. It is the laboratory upon which we do everything else. Um, if you were studying physics, you'd be spending time in the lab. Or chemistry, you'd take a course and then be in the lab. So our theaters are our labs. That's where you uh, apply the knowledge you've learned in class. And so basically, as you go through the um, four years, production becomes a, a more major component. So that by your senior year, it is the major component of your education. Um, now, of course, we give out degrees that are accredited, so students also have to take up 
take uh, the standard academic background courses, you know, required for graduation. And that's about 30 credits out of 120 to graduate. But they slowly learn over time how important those academic courses are. What opportunities to design are built into the program? If you come in as a lighting student, everybody's the same through their sophomore year. We don't distinguish between designers and technicians. After the sophomore year, you have to, or we'll help you make the choice, but you have to decide whether you want to be in a design track or a tech track. And we started that about 10 years ago. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't cross over, but at that point, you start designing is in that junior year. Um, So from your junior year through graduation, you have the opportunity to design um, depending upon the student and how things work out four to five shows. One of those will always be dance and you may do an opera uh, uh, along the way. Our, our biggest chunk of work is dramas, but we do have both opera and dance and a lot of dance. So every student gets that opportunity, probably about five shows, and they also get to assist on maybe four or five others before they graduate. So at the upper levels of responsibility, there is a good 10 shows you'll have under your belt before you leave. So tell me about that split between the design and tech track. And what we found is that as our enrollment grew, we had students that really, you know, it, it's an interesting divide. I guess, is that in the, will be the spring term, the sophomore year, we do script analysis in my class. And that kind of divides the students that are here because they really like the gear and the ones that are here because they really like telling stories. And I think that when they learn um, the, the work or the background work to really create a design or a plan for a show and a, and a storytelling plan, that's where that split happens. And they kind of do that on their own. I don't need to point out to them. Now, occasionally, we do have somebody who actually does both really well. They're a great technician, and they're also really good with storytelling and seeing light as a storytelling device. And sometimes we've managed to make the program structured so that you can actually get all of the courses uh, in design and technology, both. The trick becomes how we get you productions lined up. Because if you're a production electrician on a show um, in a term, you're probably not going to design a show in that term. So you may not get to the higher levels of uh, or the bigger shows, basically. But that split's kind of natural. And I think we find we, we don't do this intentionally. But um, when we interview students, we sort of look at where that where we think they fit in the program, whether they're a designer or a technician. And of course, we get surprised all the time. So you mentioned script analysis. That's that's very exciting to me as a component of design education. What do you feel are the critical elements of a design education? Wow. <laughs> that's a long list um, and, and a great question. I think that the first thing is really learning to see, and I say that on a really big scale. Um, we, do, we do photo projects. We do a lot of things. But it's that idea of really looking at the world around you and looking at how the light strikes a building, how the light strikes the people, people sitting on a park bench one afternoon uh, as you stroll through the sheep meadow. Uh, you know, it, it's all of those things in terms of honing your visual acuity and then having the desire to take um, what's usually extent material, a script, um, an opera, a libretto, and or um, a dance, and, and learning how to apply these, this seeing that you've done to the storytelling that happens in any of these. So script analysis for me is this, this 
I always tell the students there's this place you're designing between your head and your heart. And all of these fall somewhere between these two places. You have an emotional reaction to a script, but then you have to look at how that script works. Um, how how certain scenes lead to other scenes. Um, what's the theme of the story? So all of those become uh, things you can analyze intellectually, but you're still touching those from an emotional basis and touching the audience. So I sort of learned early on that to be the best designer, I have to be the best observer of life that I can possibly be, which is know the most about as many things as I possibly can because they're going to come up in a script. We live in a really great age, though, because I can look stuff up so quickly now that I don't know. But, but even then, you have to learn to do that and learn how to do that and, how to do to that. Look, and sort of what parts of it to look for. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. As much information as there is out there, there's as much misinformation. So it becomes learning how to be that filter. I hate to, I hate to say that we're all a bunch of whales floating around but, uh, and filtering out the things that are really useful for us. But in some ways, you know, we act as a filter or, you know, we do it naturally. Our brains do it. Our eyes do it. Um, so so. Uh, learning to filter, that's a critical part of it. I think learning to filter, I think learning to, um, to really, you know, it, it's, a way, it's a way overused idea right now, but that idea of critical thinking. But it's that idea of endless exposure to the art form, to scripts and then learning how to read a script, which I tell students, you don't read scripts, you actually listen to them. And I think that's the hardest part for someone who's young to do, because you've spent all these years in English classes in high school, reading and analyzing and parsing the words, but you're not listening to the words. And theater is meant to be listened to and seen. So getting a student to just really listen to what people are saying and then trying to get them to understand that you know somebody like that in that script <clears throat> you know if you're and i hate to use hedda gabler i use it all the time but you know if you look at all those characters in hedda you know those people you know the the bubble-headed intellectual academic type you know you know the local you know smarmy guy who's uh you know who's older and has power and is hitting on every woman and seeking more power um you know the woman who's trying to express herself you know those people and and you, you need to start listening if you can at least in um the voices of those people that you know so that you hear a play I, I got it. That makes sense to me. Your personal philosophy about teaching design and how do you break that up into a workable framework for instructing a student with and what are your thoughts on that? You know, over the years, I've sort of come to this conclusion that what I can teach is process. And by teaching process, I can also um, hopefully expand those people who are receptive to it to see the world. Um, you know, you can put somebody in front of, well, I actually had this happen. You can, you can, you can stick somebody uh, under the Sistine Chapel ceiling and they'll look up and they'll never get it. They'll just see it as a bunch of paint on a ceiling. And so it's that, you know, that part of design where teaching people to see, teaching people to open up their eyes. So you may look at that chapel ceiling and say, wow, that's like 
awesome. I love the painting. I love the shapes. I love the forms. Well, we can teach all that. We can talk about line and shadow and color and contrast and texture and all these basic terms that we can use to critique and make ideas about. Um, and then you hope that you can get them to that next level and we can show them the other possibilities here of, well, you know, what was his attitude when he painted it? What, um, uh, you know, what's it like to lay on your back for a year painting? Uh, there's all those other things. And, and, and my goal is to try and get a student to expand their horizons to see the totality of the world and the totality of a work. And so at that point, Am I teaching design? Um, I don't know. Am I teaching life? Um, am I teaching how to see? Um, I think all those things come together to make a great designer. Um, and then there's that little 1% or 2% called just native talent. Has education changed to keep up with the business is the first part of the question. The second part is, does it have to, seeing as how we've been doing theater as long as there's been democracy in the world? <laughs> um, yeah, I like the way you put that. We have been doing theater as long as there's democracy in the world. I uh, never thought of it that way. Those Greeks, man, they came up with some good stuff. They came up with great stuff, you know? <laughs> they really have. And it's a shame we've lost so many of those plays because the Romans decided to burn that, uh, that library. But anyway, you know, there's been a lot of discussion at School of the Arts about the 21st century conservatory and what that is. And I don't know. I really don't have an answer to this. Um, and I was on a committee that was studying this. Like most institutions, you wind up stuck on committees that you have to deal with stuff, and it's part of the game. But there was a, a graduate music composition student on that. And he sort of said what was in my heart, but I was afraid to say, which is like, it's, it's conservatory is a conservatory. There's no distinction between a 21st or a you know first century conservatory, although there weren't any, but you apprenticed then. You know, I think that what changes is, yes, we have new tools, but in my heart, I don't think that the purpose of theater has changed or the purpose of uh, entertainment has changed. So at its core, it's the same stuff. It's just new tools. And I think how we teach it is just adjusting to the learning styles of the students who are currently enrolled. Because there are new learning styles, whether they've been forced upon us or not. You know, I have students who say, oh, man, I hate reading. It's like, really? It's like, oh, do I have to write a paper? But then if I sat down on a blog with them, they'd be writing their little fingers off. And it's like, you know, and I want to say, you know, I do more reading and writing in the 21st century than I ever have. And, and that's solely because I've got this machine in front of me called a computer. So really, the shifts are more cultural than based on anything that's happening in the business? I think so. I think so. You know, the business the business has changed. You've seen it. I've seen it uh, from the age of the David Merrick types to the giant conglomerates producing. But the process to get to the work tends to be pretty much the same. And uh, the way a director works with actors doesn't change very much. And the way you talk to a director about a work hasn't changed very much. Um, the fact that we can throw the coolest projections in the world on the stage now, yeah, that's cool. It, it changes how we look at it. But in the end, even design-wise, we're still dealing with color, contrast, texture, line, form, shape, mass, all these basic things that we've always dealt with, just new tools. When we introduce a new technology, whether it was moving lights or whether it's projection now or the level of projection we're doing, it's always been projection, right? Shadow puppets and all that. 
you know, it it's the new toy sometimes has to scream for a while till we pat it on the head and said, yeah, you're as pretty as everybody else. Now let's get back into the fold and get back to the idea of telling a story. We're not going there to see the projection. I don't go to see the lighting design. Well, sometimes I do, but but the, the most of the audience goes to get in touch with the characters and to relate on that human level. So if the scope of this, we, if we lose that human level, then I think we're losing the essence of what theater is about. Um, you know, it's easy for projections to become overwhelming, just like when we first started using moving lights, it became easy to make them overwhelm the show with, you know, brightness and, and color. And, um, but eventually we learn to control our tools. I think what I'm hoping about with all that is that projection doesn't become this overwhelming cinematic layer on top of the show that takes the characters away, but it becomes this abstract way of introducing story um, that moves us away from structure and reality as we know it and lets us tell the stories in new and interesting ways. I would join you in hoping that. I guess it, it sort of seems like the goal is to create a more cinematic experience. And, and that's not just a projection thing. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always that long-standing argument of, you know, well, where's the best work being done? Well, it's not being done on Broadway. Well, yeah, sometimes it is. And sometimes it's being done in places like the Guthrie or, or, um, or Long Wharf or, you know, at La Jolla Playhouse or so. Or La Mama. Yeah, La Mama. You know, it can be it can be lots of places where the great work's being done. Um, Broadway has Broadway, and I tell my students this: it's it's a great goal to go there, and it's a great place to work. But at some level, Broadway is real estate. This was a big learning experience for me, understanding that ultimately the Schuberts and Niederlanders were not theater organizations; they were real estate organizations. They're, they're real estate organizations, and 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 now even more than ever. Um, if you look at the cost square foot of a piece of Manhattan in 1960 and look at the cost square foot of a piece of Manhattan today, you, you know, you need to keep that real estate alive and active. And, and, you know, those theaters have always tried to fill those seats to pay for the real estate, to keep the property values, et cetera. Yeah. And, and the other part of it is that, hey, every once in a while we do some brilliant stuff. Um, I'm sure you've seen it and I've seen it and it was and it was the joy of and I haven't seen it yet, but it's the joy at least of my reading it in the paper about the transferring of Hamilton from downtown to uptown. I'm and, going in January. Oh, okay, I'm jealous, but maybe I'll get there soon. But you know, you read in the you, at least I read in the Times and the other articles was that that fear that is often happens is you move something from off Broadway where it has a real vibrance and connection and earthiness and you move it to Broadway and you add so much stuff that you lose the show. Pile all stuff on top of it. Because, because well, you have to, because you're going to Broadway, you know, it needs, you need more stuff. So, and, and from all I've read, Hamilton succeeded at that game really well of not losing the essence of the show because they've moved it to the, the, you know, the big white way, the place where things are brighter, bigger, better, faster, louder, and, of course, more expensive. So, yeah, One might wonder if perhaps that's the reason Chicago has lasted as long as it has. It didn't add anything when it moved from Encores to, to Broadway. It just it's, – it's what it was. Yeah. That, that's a really – yeah, that's a really great example of a show is that, you know, from when it first happened, uh, I was in college and saw it during its off-Broadway uh, uh, tryouts. Oh. You know, 
that that show actually seems to have got done less and less as it moves forward. You know, it's needed less and less. Every iteration, and, and now it's down, we're seeing concert versions of it all the time. It's still a great show. Absolutely. You know, the, sto- the story is really clear. And, and slowly we've pulled away all these other layers of stuff from when, you know, from when Jules first did it. So You mentioned, uh, earlier you mentioned, you know, Cathedral Conservatories didn't used to exist. It was apprenticeships. Right. And I feel like I, I've talked to a lot of people, some of them were students of yours, who... Who, who sort of got told that the way it worked was you went and interned with a designer with a design organization, then you became an assistant and then an associate, and then when they got more jobs than they had to fill, then they would send you out as a designer. And that's sort of going away. Now there mm-hmm. are people like like Billington who are who are still absolutely keeping the traditional track alive, but there are other people that aren't. And one, why do you think that is? And two, what do you think that causes in the long term? I, you know, I'm a real fan of that system. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, it is going away at some level. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, that was certainly the tradition and was certainly the tradition when I got to New York. Um, and, you know, as we see shifts in the business, and, and frankly, I'm still trying to figure it out. When we went from the role of a lighting designer and one, maybe two assistants, to now a lighting designer, an associate, two assistants, um, you know, as we spread out the numbers of people involved, it, you know, that, that room for stepping up to the next level seems to be going away. Um, you know, and I think that as I watch, I see a lot of people go to New York and they sort of fade out quickly after being an assistant and they never get to the associate level or the associates never get the job because, you know, United Sync Arts was great for this for the longest time and still is in the sense that you can't be a business. You're a designer and you're an employee of the producer. Um, and that helps set that structure. And Billington has, uh, and has always done really well at having a group in his studio that can move forward, get more jobs and move away. But it's always been this group of people where it allows that designer to get to take more and more shows because they're showing up later in the process. There are an associates in there, or maybe they have two people who they use as an associates. So now those people can be at the at the theater during basic text, and then you come in towards the end of tech and polish it off, um, or you're in there for part of it, depending upon who your client is at that point. So uh, you know it was beginning to happen a long time ago in the '60s and '70s where Designers were clever at how they were using assistants, being able to take more shows, taking more shows, take shows away from the, from people who are coming up. So, you know, I've seen a change. I don't know where it's going. Um, the fact is, if you're going to work certainly in New York and on Broadway, you need to apprentice somehow uh, because you have to learn that transition from being – so entrenched in your process and the design uh, to having to deal with the political aspects of it. I mean, I'm not sure, but what percentage do you think, for instance, does uh, does a designer actually design now and how much do they politic? Um, I, I, f- I feel like it's not just designers. All the designers have it, I think, worst of all. But I feel yeah. like it, it happens to m- most people in, in in entertainment, quite frankly, yeah. you know whether that's makeup guys on television or lighting designers on Broadway. There's so much work that isn't the work. Yeah, yeah. And I have seen people that the ninety percent of the time that they're not actually doing the work, 
burns them out to the point where they can't enjoy the 10% anymore. Anymore, yeah. Which is, you know, and it gets back to process again for me. If you're ready for that to be part of your process, then I think you can survive and move up through these ranks. Um, there are a lot of people who the process, and it goes back to like if you read Jeannie Rosenthal's book, you know, some of the most magical moments ever are those midnight in the theater when it's you and your crew and a couple people walking the stage and you bring a light up at that special moment at that special time that just rings truth into your vision in your life. Um, we're losing those by the complications and layers that we've created, those kind of moments of stillness, of process and creation, which yes. is why most people start lighting design. But as you move through the process and the business of it, which – and it is show business, you know, the business is really over, beginning to overwhelm the process, I think, at some level. Um, when you look at the – just the work you've got to do as a Broadway lighting designer, uh, you know, a good percentage of it is the politicking, is the, is the business end, is the, uh, is the not being in the seat staring at the stage but allowing your programmer and your associate to come up with ideas that you polish – while you're working with the director or the producer to make sure your your schedules are right or your times are right or that or that you're stroking them in the right way they need to be stroked so that you can get the work done so it's a it's an interesting place when you get to that level in, the, in a career that's all true on a previous episode we spoke with Miriam Crow she and I talked about a kind of theater that she still does and that I used to do where you know you're working in a little place you know it's me you and maybe three people and you're there for the process, and the lighting gets to grow along with the performance and the choreography or, or the whatever. And there's no way to do that in the current sort of business model of theater. Yeah. But that offers you those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and, it, and I still tell students this, is that, you know, you, know, you have to do – you're going to have to do things you don't want to do. Um, and maybe you never wanted to do corporate theater. But you go like that IBM show – and you're going to make a bigger fee than you will for your first Broadway show. Uh, but that allows you to go down to Soho or go into a loft or go off, off Broadway and just play with light. Yeah. It's a really interesting dilemma. And, and it's certainly something that I talk to students about is, you know, is how do you, how do you do both of those things? How do you earn a living and then feed the soul? Um, and that feeding of the soul is really critical. You know, it's like, Every once in a while, I think everybody needs to go. Maybe maybe we can make this a rule. You and I can make this a rule. Every once in a while, everybody's got to go get some number 10 cans and some clip lights and light a little one act just to do it. You know, I think you're onto something. <laughs> I'm serious. Well, you know, I, I talk about number 10 cans and my students look at me like I'm an alien. It's like, what's a number 10 can? Those those things so, from Times Square you got from Times Square Lighting. Yeah, they were the cheapest yeah, things around. The things around, yeah. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And, and I said, well, you know, go down back to the cafeteria and look at the really big tin cans that, they, that they're getting your food out of every day and um, turn it into a lighting fixture. You can do it. And, uh, and there you go. Just imagine an R40 bulb in the can. Yeah. That's literally it. That's it. That's your, that's your light. You know, it's like... How do you think the par can came about? You know, it's just a really sophisticated number 10 can, right? So, yeah, uh, those kinds of levels. And, you know, and the, the sort of one of the things we have at school that sometimes is good is that is that students get to work at that level with other students, which I think is we don't do enough of. And I don't think a lot of conservatories do enough of that. You're so intent on doing the big show 
or uh, mounting the shows with all the other departments that, you know, you don't let students just go off and do little plays with other students. And we do a little bit of that. And some of our students do get that experience, which I think is the really critical thing, is a critical thing. That's, you know, that's something that I've actually been thinking about quite a bit, you know, the sort of like the idea of a theater program where in, over the course of four years, you design one show. Yeah. You have all these students. It doesn't have to be one person designing and it takes 14 people to install their design. You know, I mean, I've heard about the film schools like this where every week we're going to shoot a new thing. Yeah. We shoot a new thing every week and we change the positions around. And one week you're the cinematographer and one week you're the gaffer and one week you're operating the camera. And that's possible. Yeah. You know, uh, um, Eric Rimes, who who is the head of lighting technology at school, uh, and I have tried to work out that process with our colleagues. And it's exactly that. It's like, why not, you know, we've got all these spaces. Why not make a space? And it's like, okay, it's it's the traditional black box or it's a found space. And you throw in something really simple, 12, 24 dimmers, a couple 12 packs, uh, a set inventory, three people. And, you know, a set designer and, you know, one TD and a costume designer and they have access to inventory and some other students who say, okay, it's your theater for the term. You have to produce three shows and we're giving you $1,000 to to get the tetanus shot after you've dumpster dived, whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. whatever that $1,000 has to go to. But, um, but just create from what's around you. I don't know. We could call it the collage theater. This is all the little snippets of things you've cut out of books. Throw them together and put it up there and see what happens. Um, we're big proponents of that. It's really you know, it's, it's hard because everybody wants to get all these regimented things. Like you said, it's like we got to do the big show, or you know, my goal is to like we're doing the opera, so it's got to be you know a full orchestra, and um, we concentrate on that a, a little more than creating the relationships that really make theater work. In, you know, having actors get to know the designers and technicians and having aspiring directors actually like climb the ladder and work with the lighting designer for a while. Um, and, and pretty much without our supervision, opening that free space for them while they still are also doing the more formulated uh, process as well. So that would be really exciting if that were something that was possible, but I mean, maybe it's enough for people to know that that's something they should be trying to figure out. And sort of focusing on the big project isn't necessarily the right thing. And that if you have these opportunities, take them early in your career. If you, you know, if you can work in a place with 24 dimmers and some paint cans with our 40 bulbs in them, just take it and see it and sort of use that to find out what happens. What, what happens, yeah. I think there were, you know, young students, not all of them, are, are enamored by flashy objects just like I am. So it's like, I want to play with the Varilite. I want to play with the moving light. I want to play with the, you know, the Grand MA. I, you know, I, I want to play with the big toys, toys. And it's like, wait a second, let's play with the little toys and see what you can create. Let's, you know, before you build the Empire State Building, how about some uh, Lincoln Logs so that you just play? Uh, with no ramifications. That, that's a good point. You know, I just uh, programmed a new ragtime tour, and we didn't have a single conventional other than the house front lights on that show. Mm -hmm. A designer used to be able to write on a plan, color, angle, texture. Yeah. And then all you had to do was turn the lights on and turn them off. Yeah. And there's just so many individual infinitesimal choices you have to make every second. And you have to distribute those choices among your team because you can't make all of them. Do you find that the process, you know, I always look at the process as text starts with a rough sketch and then through the course of it, you tweak that rough sketch. Do you find that there's a fear to move on 
until you get every part of it right because there are so many things, bells and whistles that have to be touched before you uh, before you have it. And then it's going to move faster and faster so that that initial cue setting process is less of a rough sketch and more trying to get to a finished drawing. I find it's it's both. I've worked with people who do both, and I understand why in both cases. Yeah. Just sort of rip through it as quickly as you can and get a framework in and then keep refining and refining and refining works great if you can do that. But, you know, there are some processes I've been a part of where it's clear that we're going to get through the show once in tech, and that's it. Yeah. And then after that, we're going to start running. And yeah. there won't be any time to stop ever again. Ever again. And we, have, we have, yeah. and we have these limited queuing times where it's like there's going to be a couple hours in the morning, but really there's going to be like one hour of, of like queue notes a day. Yeah. And so it's, no, we can't move on. We have to get this in. Yeah, and, and at that point, you're getting an audience in sooner because you need to make the revenue. So the previous yeah. audience is starting before you have time to refine. Yeah, So it's, it's just really, like we need to finish lighting the scene. There's no other way around it because I know it's going to happen if I let you move on. Well, yeah. you know, Yeah, and when, and when one fixture has 48 attributes, we're multiplying it exponentially. It's interesting, you know, it's, it's interesting that as lighting has become more flexible, we haven't uh, developed the time. And I don't think that we can to allow you to play with all the flexibility, perhaps, you know, since you have maybe a hundred movers now or on a show and all that flexibility, or you've got all these color palettes, you've got to create between disparate units that the time absorbed in preparation is, is different. Um, it's an interesting paradigm shift, perhaps. That is true. Preparation once, you know, it wasn't too much beyond here are the lights, here's the circuitry, here's the dimmers. Mm -hmm. And now it's like everyone needs that information farther and farther in advance because the production electrician has to lay out not just circuitry, but also a DMX layout, a control riser. Am I doing distributed? Am I doing it all in one place? Yeah. I have 20-some-odd, 30-some-odd universes of data that I have to shift around this space, and how am I going to do that? And the programmer has to have however much time they need to get in the shop with the fixtures, write the color palettes, get their show together so that way no one's waiting on them yeah. once, they're in the, once they're in the room. And yes, people understand that, but it's, yeah, you're right. The, the paradigm has definitely shifted and, it, and the, the preparation and, and prep work of it has, is really front-loaded now. There's so much yeah. you have to do before you even load in. And, it, and it's front-loaded to a larger group of people, I think, because, yes. uh, you know, and I still, and we still talk about you know, if we're talking about tracking consoles, we have an old resistance board sitting in the lighting classroom and say, hey, well, let's show you where tracking came from. But it's that idea that if you, you know, and when I took my union exam, it was on a tracking console, uh, you know, it was on an on a old road board, piano board. Um, you had to sit and think about how the cues were going to be run physically. I mean, could the guy grab those two switches at the same time? Did he need a stick? How am I going to get from this cue, this look to this look through these cues? Because I really had to think about how the operation was going to happen physically. So as a designer, you were front-loading that in, in a way that made tech perhaps move a little bit more smoothly, where you had, these, you had less variables involved. But now you've got so many variables involved that, that you can't do, you know, you may think through that. But you're going to make all kinds of discoveries that you never knew you were going to have because of, because of those variables. And you've got to get more people, in, like you're saying, uh, involved in the front-end prep of that, whether it's pre-vis in the shop 
or whatever, you know, or, or just setting up color palettes. And then you're setting up color palettes between disparate types of fixtures. You've got a D60 and then you've got a, uh, you know, a Mac Viper. And I want R80 on both of them. Well, good luck. It's a real interesting shift. Yeah, absolutely. So part of what you were talking about is process. And yeah. I know that you teach process in school. And I know students can come to sort of believe that the way things are done in school is the way things are done. This can have good effects because basically you're asking them to be the change that you want to see in the business. You know, like, no, 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 yeah. this is how things are done. And you go out there and do them this way. And maybe we'll solve some of these problems. But it can also stymie them if yeah. they aren't open to other workflows and other sort of well-established relationships. How do, you, how do you navigate that and explain that? I start them from the first day they're on campus as a freshman. You know, we do little orientation things. And um, I tell them right from day one that um, when they're here, they're going to learn by doing my process and they're going to learn by doing Eric Rhymes' process from the electrical end. And my expectation is, is that you spend your summers and off time working other places and learning other people's processes. And that someday when you leave here, you'll actually discover your own process. But you're going to discover that process by following patterns and then augmenting those patterns as you expand and learn and, and take in what other people do. Um, so I, you know, I'm a big proponent of my students going out and doing other things, um, sitting in on technical rehearsals for other designers so they watch how other people work. Because, you know, we know it. There's no one way to work. You know, when you're working, um, every designer has a different sort of mannerism, a different talk. And that's kind of, you know, a lot of people come to show business for that reason because they like the people. Yeah. It's about being in the business with other people and the people change. And it's not the same, you know, people next to me on the factory line every day. Um, so that idea of flexibility of process becomes for me about, I can only teach my process. I can't teach Billington's process. Uh, I can't teach Kevin Adams. I can't teach how Posner does it. I can only teach the way I do it. But your job as, as a vital young person who hopefully is passionate about um, theater and passionate about lighting is to go watch as many people as you can do it and formulate your own way uh, and formulate a way that works for you to uh, get a product on the stage in reference to how you work with other people. So much of this is just being able to deal with other people and talking to other people. And, and, and we're back to this idea of education. You know, I come in and work with you as a programmer. We're educating one another about how, what our vocabulary is, how we talk, um, what your sensibilities are, what mine are. And hopefully, if it works really well, we're going to put a great product on stage together. Um, I can't do it alone, and you can't do it alone. So it's about that part of, of formulating a process and a way of communicating that you learn by observation and then you learn by that combination of observation and doing. I think that might answer your question. Or I, I think it does. I have two more uh, education questions for you before we move on from that. One is, you know, Al Crawford and I have talked about this and you mentioned it earlier, you know, the, the students coming to New York and kind of fading away. There's an unbelievable number of new LDs being minted every year mm -hmm. by programs all over the United States. Forget other countries, just in the U.S., where are they going and what are they doing and sort of what's happening to them? Wow. I don't know. It scares me at some level. Um, 
you know, I use this scare tactic, which never works. You know, I sit down at some point early in the sophomore year. And, of course, you know, every student thinks, and we all do this, you know, uh, I'm special. I'm at, I'm at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. I've got accepted to this school. That makes me special. Um, I've got a leg up on everybody else. But then if you sit down and you say, okay, there's 50 states and each state has a, uh, has a state university and every state university has a theater program of some sort. And every one of those has at least, let's say, two lighting designers graduate. Well, there's a hundred right there. Now let's start, you know, and I just put these, I try and like crash, crush the numbers of how many people come out of colleges every year thinking they're going to be a lighting designer and earn a living and say, well, here's your competition. Here's, here's what you're up against. And then we'll look at the, you know, we'll open up New York Times and say, mm, how many shows are on Broadway this week? And how many designers are, how many different designers are doing these shows? Um, well, you know, fortunately now there's a lot more than there was 30 years ago or 20 years ago where there was like six people doing all the work. But, but you know, you start looking at those numbers and, and hopefully that gives them a framework for what their competition is and why they've got to excel at what they do to succeed. But I think the other thing that we do, and we talk about this a lot, is that let's say I have a student who's okay at a lighting design or, or maybe even really good at the design part, but not good at the people part, or they're good at the people part, but they're only so-so in the planning part. The interesting thing we teach in at, at School of the Arts, and I think any good conservatory does this, is that we teach people how to plan, to be organized. We, we tell them that, that from day one and re- repeated a million times that on time is early, that showing up is half the game. That, so we, we, also, we instill all these values that perhaps are not so common in our, in our modern workforce. And um, by instilling these other values that are good theater values – or, or make for, you know, optimizing your time in the theater. Um, we're teaching them to optimize their, their abilities as human beings in any workforce area. So um, we've also taught them how to analyze, how to, how to look at a script. So in many ways, although they may be falling out of lighting design, we've, we've given them acquired skill sets that actually will set them up really well if they want to, in their heart, follow something else. Not everybody's cracked up to be in this business. And it's like we talked earlier, there's that, there's that people part, the political part, the process part, the love of the art form itself. Um, letting students realize that the art form is actually theater. Um, it's not lighting design. The, the final product is really theater or, or opera or dance. So um, I think that idea of preparation for what we do to do it well puts most people far ahead of the game of other people graduating college who um, who've gone through a BA or a BS and you know they're they haven't they haven't done that that practicum part that we do um, that you know the show opens totally on fair. Tuesday yeah. night you got to be done so you got to plan to get there um, so you know whether they leave here and become doctors uh, lawyers um, which we've had happen. I think the one thing we do do in, in theatrical education, at least at our institution, is prepare students to do something else, to actually have a background to be able to do it. 
Uh, so what have been your favorite moments from your career as an educator? You mentioned the, the sort of midnight with your crew yeah. when you turn the light on at the exactly right time. What's that for education for you? Um, I think that the biggest moments uh, for most educators and, and probably for me is the moment you get, and now it's an email, but the moment you get the phone call or an email um, or even a Facebook comment from a former student that says, you know, this happened today and I thought of you immediately, or I encountered this problem and I, and I remembered this moment and it got me through that, that day. So I think it's the, I think it's the later in life things that, that, that really make it for me more than, more than in the throes of the educational moment. Um, but there are times when you're sitting in the theater behind a student and I try not to do this too much because I don't want, I, I don't want to influence the student's design. Um, but I'll sit there and I'll just lean over and ask a student, what is it you see right now? And they look up from their magic sheet and from, they love to look at screens now and look at the screens and they look at the stage and they go, Oh crap. And they get it right away. They get the compositional thing that I saw that was a problem and they weren't catching for whatever reason because they're so immersed in just looking at the product or looking at, you know, uh, students are oftentimes like be staring at the actor's face to, to look at the shadow pattern. And in the meantime, the sconce on the wall is so bright that, that for me, I can't look at anything else but the sconce, but it's those moments of realization that are really special, whether it's in the moment of the process or 10 years later that, Oh my God, you said this and it lives with me every day um, and has made and had an effect. I think those are the really, the really good ones. Thanks for joining us for our first two episodes with Norman Coates, the director of lighting at University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Make sure you come back for the second one and check that out too. Our next episode, we'll be talking about Norman's work with the Winston-Salem Light Project and Norman's professional career. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Casting Light Podcast. Visit us on the web at castinglightpodcast.com. You can use the contact form there to let us know what you think, and you can find all of our previous episodes there. We're also on Facebook at Casting Light Podcast and on Twitter at Podcasting Light. Our theme music is Color Me Dead by The Lame Drivers. You can learn more about them at lamedrivers.com. The Casting Light Podcast is a production of Casting Light Incorporated. I'm your host, Jason Marin. Thanks for downloading, and have a good show. Let's go, come to you.